Good morning. How's everyone doing today? It's good to be here today. And my name is Nathan Williams. I'm the pastor of Community Ministries, and it is my privilege to be able to bring to you the second in our summer series entitled Hero. And if you were here last week, you remember that we are spending the summer looking at Old Testament heroes of the faith from Hebrews chapter 11, which we fondly like to refer to or call the uh, Hall of Faith, but ultimately, which points us back to the real hero, and that is Jesus Christ, who ultimately is the one who saves all people, whether Old Testament or new, because of his sacrifice for us. So our jump-off verse, or verses to be precise, this morning are found in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, which say this, by faith... The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, we're going to circle back to these, this verse later on at the end of our uh, message here this morning. But first we need to dig in and see the backstory to who this woman Rahab really is and the story surrounding her. So for that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. And if you don't have your Bible with you, you should be able to find that in the auditorium Bibles on page 138. All right, so we've got a great story this morning with a lot of intrigue, and we're going to be looking at that. But before we do that, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson or bring you up to speed, so to speak, to understand the context in which this story takes place. So the Hebrews, otherwise known as the children of Israel, are camped out on the east side of the Jordan River, anticipating crossing over and conquering the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now, here's where a lot of people get bogged down, right here, and they can't get any further. They're trying to understand why God would order his chosen people to go into a region and take people's land at the edge of the sword. A very destructive invasion, not to say the least. So that you can get over this, I'm going to explain this to you a little bit, right? So now, in order to understand this, we need to go back 400 years to a time where God promised Abraham that this land would belong to his descendants. However, there's a problem because the Canaanites lived there. And who were the Canaanites? They were an ungodly, idolatrous, wicked people. But one thing you've got to understand is that God is a patient God, giving people more, way more opportunity to repent than any of us actually deserve. Peter says this perfectly in 2 Peter 2.9 when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what exactly did God say to Abraham 400 years earlier when he was promising him this land? Genesis 15 tells us, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, 
and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for, and I want you to get this part, for the iniquity or the sin or the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. What God is telling Abraham here is that it's going to be a long time, even though I'm promising you this land, it's going to be a long time before your descendants actually inherit it. And in the meantime, they're actually going to end up being foreigners in another country. We know that to be Egypt. Why so long? Why the wait so long? He says at the end here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, see the Amorites are the people who lived in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, even as wicked as they were, their wickedness had not reached the point at which God said, okay, enough is enough, no more. It's time now that judgment will fall upon these people and I will wipe them out. Yes, God judges evil nations and eventually people for their evil deeds. All people, not just the Canaanites, not just the Amorites. In Jeremiah chapters 24 and 29, we are told that God is about to judge his own people with the edge of the sword, in other words, letting other nations come in and invade them, with famine, lack of food, with pestilence, having, having uh, insects and rodents come in and devour their crops. Why? Because they had turned away from God and become an evil nation, just like the people they were commanded to go in and wipe out because of the evil deeds. You know, this should be a great warning here to us in the United States we think, you know, we're a blessed nation, and we have been. But as we look at history, we see that as nations rise and then fall away from God, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, other nations that have rose to power and then gone off in a wicked direction, God brings them to an end. God brings judgment so how evil had these people become? Well, in addition to what the Bible tells us, we also see from archaeology that the practice that these people carried out was, was absolutely detestable. Their worship revolved around the satanic practices that involved all kinds of sexual activities, both male and female prostitution was part of their temple worship, Bestiality or the practice of having sex with animals was common. Incest was condoned. Pedophilia was a part of their culture where grown men would sexually abuse small boys. All a part of mimicking their fertility gods. And if this wasn't enough to make your stomach absolutely churn, they also practiced human child sacrifice as they worshipped their god Molech. The bronze image of a man with the head of a bull, with outstretched arms, and they would stoke a fire in his belly. And when his arms got red hot, they would take a child as, as, as old as four years old and place it in his arms, and the screaming child would then be burned up until it died. Part of their worship? I've got two four-year-old grandsons. They're old enough to have conversations with me, to speak, 
to carry on a conversation and to understand things, to laugh and play and, and feel pain and, and experience joy. I can't even imagine for a second that you would place a child of any age alive to be burned up, whether born or unborn or anywhere in between. Evil, evil practices. And this is the pagan culture into which the Israelites were commanded to go and wipe out the evil from the land. And Canaan at the time was made up of many city-states, well, large fortified and walled cities into which the local inhabitants, whether they, if they didn't even live in the city from the surrounding towns, they could go in times of war and it was a time where they could be protected. Jericho was to be the first conquest of the new leader of Israel, Joshua. And to say the least, he was a little uneasy about how the battle was going to go. In fact, in chapter 1, we see Joshua, he's a little bit scared, and the Lord had to appear to Joshua and say, Joshua, take courage. I am with you wherever you go. I've got this. So Joshua says, all right. All right. I've got this. With you by my side. So by chapter 2, we see that Joshua is starting to make plans and decides to send two spies into the city of Jericho to find out what they're up against. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was one of the two spies chosen by Joshua to go into an enemy city, and I'm a foreigner, and I'm probably going to stand like a, like a sore thumb, to gather reliable information and then try and make it out alive, I'd be probably scared to death. But here they go, looking for a place they might gather some information. We're told that they end up in the house of a prostitute by the name of Rahab. Rahab's house was probably like an inn, a place where people could find lodging. We see that the two spies lodged there. And probably the... They're thinking, okay, this is a place where people go in and out. We can probably gather some information here. But in any case, here they are. And so we have the two spies who are trying to stay undercover in a wicked pagan city to gather reputable information. And where'd they end up? The house of a prostitute. Not what we would call, probably me or you would say, that's probably not the best place to gather reliable information. After all, getting reliable information in the house of ill repute. But here they are. You know what? The, the, the author of the book of Joshua could have totally blown over the story of Rahab and still had a very succinct story and said, well, two spies went into Jericho. They gathered some information and brought it back to Jericho or to Joshua. But extra care is taken to talk specifically about this woman, Rahab, specifically calling her a prostitute. Practically everywhere she is mentioned in the Bible, why would this be the case? Let's face it. No little girl dreams about growing up and being a prostitute. If you have a daughter, like I have, I've had two, and... Uh, what do they dream about when they're growing up? When I grow up, I'm going to be a princess. Or I'm going to be a doctor or a nurse or a dentist or whatever, but never a prostitute. Trust me, a woman getting into this profession has more than likely gone through an enormous amount of abuse, pain, suffering. And in desperation, she turns to selling her own body. Hollywood, 
would like to lead you to believe that this is a glamorous profession with the likes of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman or other movies. But trust me, this is anything but the truth. My first exposure to this was 36 years ago. My wife, Laura, and I had just been married. We were on our honeymoon, and we had come here to the United States on our honeymoon. And we were actually traveling from the Midwest here to New York on a bus. When the bus stopped in Toledo, Ohio, and the bus driver says, okay, you've got one hour, grab a bite to eat, and be back here in an hour because we're heading out. I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity for me to stretch my legs. Little did I know that the bus depot happened to be in the middle of the red light district. It was nighttime. I headed out for a walk. And on every street corner, there was prostitutes trying to ply their trade and trying to att attract clients. To me, this was anything but alluring as I looked into the faces and saw nothing but pure misery and pain most of whom was obvious they were on drugs, trying to hide and, and, and cover the pain that they were enduring and feeling. You know what? I was never so glad to get back to the bus depot where my beautiful, smiling bride was waiting for me. But there's something different about the prostitute in this story. Let's go ahead and read some of the story, starting in verse 1, chapter 2. Follow along as I read. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, at first glance, you might be thinking, what is the matter with this woman? First of all, she is harboring the enemy of her people, which makes her what? A traitor. Secondly, she's a liar, giving false information to the king's messengers. And then you might think, but what else could you expect from a woman of this profession? But I want you to take a step back for a second and look at this from another angle. Rahab, the prostitute, was taking a tremendous risk in hiding the Hebrew spies. If it were found out that she was hiding them, it would have undoubtedly been a death sentence for her. She would have been dragged from her house and beaten to death for hiding the spies. And why hide them anyway? It's not like she had a close relationship with them. It's not like she knew them. After all, she had just met them. 
And not only that, she was potentially giving up any reward or recognition she would have received from the king, king for handing them over. There's obviously something going on with Rahab that is making her take this huge risk and putting her life, her own life, in jeopardy. Let's continue reading in verse 8. So before the men, that's talking about the two spies, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Shehan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. This here, my friends, is the key passage to the whole story. So let's break it down a little bit. First of all, all Rahab, she might have been a prostitute, but she wasn't an idiot. She was able to examine the evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion. And that's our first of five quick points that I want to look at. Number one, examine the evidence. Now, you have to remember that in those days, there was no Fox News, no CNN, no Hawkeye newspaper, no Des Moines Register, but that never stopped the Camel Express from spreading the news. Even though it's unlikely that Rahab was even alive 40 years earlier, when God parted the Red Sea and let the Hebrews walk through on dry land before closing it in over the pursuing Egyptian army and drowning them, news had found its way to Jericho, she knew the story. She then would have also heard stories of these Hebrews, a group of about two million people who had come and started wandering around in the wilderness, and I'm sure everyone was probably thinking, they're not going to last there very long. It's a desert with no water, no food. They're done for. But somehow, they had both food and water. And somehow, for 40 years, they survived. And then as they got closer to the promised land, two mighty kings of the Amorites, one of whom had six well-walled, large, strong cities, both experienced in war, came out to fight the Hebrews, who were ex-slaves with practically no military experience. We're going to wipe out this hero, these Hebrews, only to find out that the Hebrews absolutely demolished these kings. As I said earlier, Rahab was no idiot. She could see what had taken place. She lived in a place where information was readily available, and she knew that the things that had happened were not a course of a natural phenomenon. There had to be an explanation. It was also obvious from her pagan culture that if there was a spiritual answer to this, it didn't come from the gods that her people worshipped. She had never witnessed anything like this or seen this kind of supernatural power happen among her people. My friends, like Rahab, we too must examine the evidence 
Is there a God? If so, what is he like? What would he have me believe about him? Is the Bible the source that tells us about that God? Is it reliable? If it is, should I seek to understand it so that I can better understand how to please God? Romans 1, chapter 18 through 20 says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we are without excuse. For a start, the Bible states that there is plenty of evidence pointing to the fact that there is a God, if for no other reason than nature itself. Take the feather of a bird and to see how that was designed to be able to to waft this creature up in the air and float along. Take the petal of a flower and look at the intricacy of it. Take the human body with our DNA and all its parts. Take, for example, just the human eyeball alone. With about 120 million rods, six to seven million cones, all designed to be able to see color, ranges of light and darkness, depth perception. Without rods and cones, I wouldn't know how close I was getting to the edge of the platform and we'd be constantly in jeopardy of falling off. I wouldn't know how far or close the table was. I wouldn't be able to see the difference in the color of my Bible or the table so I'd be always wondering where it is. And then to think that instantaneously all these millions of receptors are able to gather that information and send it instantaneously to my brain so that I can process that and know exactly where to do, where to go, what to touch, what not to touch. I tell you what, all this happened by accident? I don't think so. I have to look at the evidence of nature alone and like Rahab, understand that there has to be a supernatural creator. And what of the Bible itself? Can it be trusted to say, okay, if there is a God, can this be trusted to tell us who that God is? I'll tell you, If you know of an author, either modern day or old, who has written a book within 10 or 20 years of each other, it's hard to find someone who who doesn't even contradict himself because you know what? Our our, our views and our opinions change over a period of time. We see this in politics all the time. We call them flip-floppers, right? But here's a book, the Bible written over a period of 2,000 years by about 40 different authors in three different languages and on three different continents, and yet it doesn't contradict itself, but weaves a fantastic story, a very succinct story of of creation and then our fall from, from God and our need for God. And then God, all pointing towards Jesus Christ and Jesus' answer to that when he came and died on the cross for our sins. A book so well put together from so many different sources that it can only be 
inspired by God to teach us about God and how we would honor him. And as Rahab examined the evidence, so must we. Rahab realized that her people were destined for destruction at the hands of the Hebrews. So too, we are warned of God's judgment because of our wickedness and our refusal to acknowledge him. Evidence that demands a verdict is what brought Rahab to come to a conclusion, which is point number two. Come to a conclusion. Rahab, she saw the facts laid out before her. She had to come to a conclusion. She saw the evidence. And she came to believe that it was the Lord who dried up the Red Sea, verse 10. The power of the Lord. It was the power of the Lord who sustained and fought for the Hebrews. It was not the people themselves. She recognized that. This couldn't be possible. It had to be the Lord. Was the same evidence that Rahab saw? Was that same evidence available to all the residents of Jericho? Absolutely. Was everyone in that city shaking with fear because they were aware that they were about to be demolished? Sure. So what makes Rahab stand out from the rest? While everyone else was probably calling out for their gods, Rahab examined the evidence and she came to the conclusion, no, it's not our gods, it is the Lord. And she said to the two spies, I know that the Lord has given you this land. You see, Rahab's conclusion about the power of the God of the Hebrews led her to state her conviction, which is point number three, state your conviction. Let's read verse 11 again, which is really Rahab's statement of faith. And, and leading up to this, she is, is recounting to the two spies the evidence that she has seen. And then she says, the second half of verse 11, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Boom. You can't say it much clearer than that, can you? What she is essentially saying is that there really is no real God other than the one true God. And that this God is all-powerful, not like their local gods, where you had some gods for the God of rain, some for the God of fertility, others for the God of power over their enemies, some for good crops, whatever. No, Rahab recognized that the God of the Hebrews was all-powerful over everything, everywhere in heaven and everywhere on earth. Now, let me ask you this. Is it enough to believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God? That he is the author and sustainer of all life? Simple answer is no. That's not enough. Look what James says in James 2, 19. And I think you'll note him dripping with sarcasm. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, real faith is not about a matter of believing about something, but rather putting your belief in that thing. Let me say that again. Real faith is not a matter of believing about something, but rather putting your belief in that thing. 
You know, there's no doubt but that the devil and all his demons fully believe that the God of the Bible is, in fact, the one true God. But they have, in fact, chosen to rebel against him in defiance of him and attempt to lead all humans to doubt him or run away from him. So let me ask you, is it enough to say, I believe in God? Does that make you a follower of God? I tell you what, it's a good start. It is. But let me be frank with you, unless there is evidence of your faith by your actions, it's questionable if your faith is, in fact, even real. At this point in our story, we see Rahab acting in faith. She said what she believes, now she's acting in it, which is different from just stating what you believe to be true. Which brings us to point number four. We must act in faith. So Rahab has just stated what she believes about who God is. And in light of that, let's continue reading to see what she does about it. Let's continue reading in verse 12. Now then, Rahab is talking to the two spies still. Now then, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that I have dealt kindly with you that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. You know, there, there have been a number of occasions when people have told me that there's no hope for them that they're too far down the road, that God would never be able to forgive them. For a start, that's diminishing the power of God to be able to forgive and his sacrifice for us. But they truly believe this. They say, you know what, I've, I've done things, I belong to Satan, there's nothing I can do about that. All my family and friends, they're going to hell, so I guess that's just where I'm going to. At least I'll know somebody there, at least I'll be able to have a beer and a smoke a cigar with them. Tell you what, there is nothing farther from the truth. That's not hell, what hell is going to be like. That's not what destruction is going to be like. It's described as a place where it will be utter darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yes, it is a place where God will punish those who refuse to repent of their sins and throw themselves at the mercy of God. We already saw this when we looked at the verses in Romans earlier. And why do you have to perish just because all your friends and family are heading there anyway? Rahab was fully aware of the impending judgment that God was about to bring on her wicked people in Jericho and determined that she didn't want to be a part of that. I don't want to experience God's wrath just because the rest of my family, friends, neighbors, the rest of the city are doing that. So what did she do? She did something about it. Was it too late for Rahab? Was she so bad that she couldn't be saved? 
After all, the wicked people of Jericho probably looked down at Rahab as being even lower scum than she, than they were. She was the least likely person that you would possibly have hope for. And yet she told the two spies, I have come to believe in the power of the real God. And because of that, I'm going to help you. And I'm going to throw myself at your mercy and the mercy of God. James, the brother of Jesus and leader of the early church in Jerusalem, wrote this of Rahab. He said, in the same way, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? As for the body, apart from the spirit is dead, so also apart from work, apart, faith, apart from works, is dead. You see, in this passage, James is pointing out that real genuine faith is evidenced by actions. Over a thousand years after Rahab lived, James was able to look back and say that her faith was real. Why? Because of what she said? No, because of what she did. You see, Rahab did what she did because she believed what she believed. Did you get that? Rahab did what she did because she believed what she believed. You see, right then and there, Rahab made a decision to choose a side. And she did it at terrific risk to her and her family. She chose to be on the side of the Lord and to help the spies, regardless of the fact that she could have been caught and brutally killed. Trust me, we too need to make a decision. By birth, every one of us are citizens of Jericho, so to speak. Destined for wrath. Ephesians 2, 3 says that without Christ, and this is key, without Christ, we too are by nature children of wrath and should expect nothing less than God's judgment. If you have examined the evidence and come to the conclusion that Jesus is God and that he came to earth to die in your place, essentially taking the punishment that you deserve, won't you make the decision to follow him like Rahab, regardless of the consequences? Will it always be easy? No. You might be rejected by family and friends. You might be ridiculed by your coworkers or those whom you go to school with. You know, in some countries, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you risk being killed by your own family or be thrown into jail or killed by the government. But will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? to know the joy of the Lord. Not always going to be easy. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. He didn't promise it was going to be easy. But oh, so worth it to know that we are forgiven and we'll have eternal life with Jesus Christ forever and not experience the wrath of God. Will it be worth it? Point number five, our last point, the result of true faith. 
Now, I don't have time to read the rest of the story of Rahab, but long story short, she let the spies out through her window in the city wall, and they climbed down a scarlet-red rope, giving them, and she gave them the instructions how to keep safe until they found their way back to Joshua. And in return, they told Rahab that she and everyone in her house would be spared destruction if she left their scarlet-red rope in the window for the Hebrews to see. Does this remind you of anything? Do you remember the night before the Hebrews left Egypt? They were told to kill a lamb and take its red blood and spread it on the lentil of the door and on the doorpost. And if doing so, if they believed that to be true and obeyed in faith and did that, that the angel of death would pass over their house and that death and destruction would not enter in. The people at that time didn't really understand the full implications of that or what that even meant. But really, that was a picture looking forward to Jesus Christ, the real Lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf and whose blood, if we say, Jesus, I accept your blood as a payment for my sins, that blood covers us so that God's wrath passes over us and we will not endure eternal punishment. Likewise, Rahab just had to obey and trust. This was her faith, and trust that to be true. When they said, put that scarlet red, blood red cord out the window, and when we see this, we will pass over your house and not bring destruction to your house when we bring it to the rest of Jericho. Again, a picture of pointing toward Jesus Christ, the real Savior, I want you to turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to chapter 6. We're going to jump to the end of the story and see what happens when Jericho is being destroyed. Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 22. But, the two men, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to, swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron did they put into the treasure of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. So Pastor Clay pointed out last week that people like Rahab in the Old Testament were saved by faith, by what they believed about God and how they acted upon that belief. Today we have a fuller, more complete picture of what that looks like because we live on the other side of the cross. Today we understand that to have faith in God is to believe, just like, G, like Rahab believed the, the, the two spies that said, we will pass over your house. We have to believe that God will pass over our sins if we have faith in him by believing in him and deciding to follow him no matter what we will be saved from the coming wrath of God. 
So how, what does all this mean to us? You know what, it's, it's, it's been a, I, I know this has been a heavy sermon. No one likes to talk about God's coming wrath, his coming judgment, but this is, this is so evident in our passage here this morning. The coming judgment of all who refuse to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. You know, I quoted 2 Peter 2.9 earlier, but let me quote it again, and this time I'm going to add verse 10 to it. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When do thieves come? When we least expect it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. My friends, there is no question but that God's judgment will come upon this earth and upon all who have ever lived apart from true faith in God, just as it did upon the inhabitants of Jericho. But guess what? We have been given a choice, like Rahab, to turn from our wicked ways and throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ. He is the real hero. He is the one who took our place on the cross. He is the one who calls out to, me, to us, come you who are heavy and uh, uh, weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is the one who pleads with us to lay our sins at the foot of the cross that we may receive forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. He is the one whose immense love desires for you to live and not experience in the coming judgment of God. John three seventeen says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus is the real hero who offers us grace instead of what we deserve. Is that the end of the story of Rahab? No. Did she continue in the ways of her sordid past or go back into the wicked, idolatrous ways of her people? No. You see, Rahab ended up marrying a Hebrew by the name of Salmon and gave birth to a son. Now, we all know the influence our mothers have on us that helps shape us into the person we become. Well, Rahab's son was a man by the name of Boaz. And what was Boaz like? The Bible calls him a worthy man. He is described as being kind and generous. And when he greeted people, he didn't say, hey, hi, how are you doing? Are you having a good day? No, he greeted people with the words, the Lord be with you. A godly man. A faith, no doubt, learned at the feet of his mother, Rahab. Boaz became the great-grandfather of King David, a man of whom it is written, he was a man after God's own heart. And God re honored Rahab's newfound faith by pointing her out and including her in the male-dominated genealogy of Jesus, all the ancestors of Jesus. There's only four women mentioned. One is Rahab, because God wanted to point her out as a trophy of his grace. And then by including her in the heroes of the faith, 
in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says this, and I started with this verse, and I want to end with it. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. My friends, if you are here today and you are thinking that there's no hope for you, that you are beyond saving, don't believe it. Don't let Satan put this lie into your head. God is in the business of saving addicts and astronauts, doctors and drunks, murderers and mathematicians, prostitutes and preachers. All alike. We all need Jesus Christ. We all need his mercy. We all need his grace. I don't matter how good you think you are or how bad you think you are. God's grace is enough. And what a terrific story of, of, of a prostitute. And I think God specifically said to the authors of the Bible, he says, he says, write this down. Call her Rahab the prostitute because it highlights that God's grace is enough for anyone. And his grace is magnified and glorified because of that. In fact, it's probably even easier seen when we see someone like Rahab, even though we all need it. So if you're here today and you're thinking, oh, you know what, maybe there is hope for me, let me tell you, there is hope for you. Today could be the day when you say, Jesus, I need you. I'm tired of walking that way, the way, the wicked ways of the people of Jericho. And maybe you think, well, I wasn't that bad. But I tell you what, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus Christ. And say, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm tired of this. I trust that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that his blood was enough to cover my sins, and that I am going to place my faith in him so that his wrath will, will pass over me, and I am going to turn from this direction, and I am going to turn, and I, turn, and I am going to follow Jesus Christ no matter what. You can make that decision today to follow Jesus Christ. I know also there's some of you out here this morning. You've got sons. You've got daughters. You've got brothers. You've got sisters. You've got parents. And you're thinking, ah, I've given up. There's no hope for them. What's the point? Let me tell you, never give up. Keep praying for them. Keep loving on them. Keep sharing the word of God with them. Plead with them to come back to Jesus Christ. Maybe to come to Jesus Christ for the first time. If God can save a prostitute, God can save your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister. God can save you. Won't you trust in him and choose to follow him? Let's pray.